Well, good morning, everyone. I turned, uh, I've got it on. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. So glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, you know, when you run a marathon, uh, you have a chance to think about a lot of things. And uh, yesterday, it seems like I only thought of one thing the whole day. Well, actually, two. One was, I wonder if I could get a wheelchair ramp up to the stage, uh, because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it up there tomorrow. Uh, but the question that kept coming to my mind over and over again yesterday was, why am I here? Like, why am I here? I got to, uh, I ran the first half marathon in, in pretty good stead. I got to about the 16 mile mark and uh, my lack of training caught up with me. Many of you know I was injured about eight weeks ago and so I missed my biggest runs and so not that that's any problem for you, but it sure was for me. And um, I got to about the 16 mile mark and I kind of fell off with the group I was running with and, I, and the first thought that came to my mind was, why am I here? And then I got to the 20-mile mark, and I had this excruciating pain in the top of my foot. This is my excuses, by the way. So I got this excruciating pain in the top of my foot to where I could not run a single step. I had to walk. And I finally, uh, after doing this for a couple minutes, I stopped and retied my shoe, and everything was fine. But I was like, as I was tying my shoe, I'm like, why am I here? And then I got to the 20-mile mark, and I started to get a cramp in my thigh. And again, same question, why am I here? And I got to 21, and I got a cramp in my left calf. And it was so bad I could only run for about 20 seconds at a time and then I had to start walking before it locked, locked, locked up. And I was like, why am I here? And then I got to 22 miles and I got one in my right calf. And so I had a cramp in my thigh and a cramp in both calves. And I'm thinking, okay, Steve, why are you here? And then I got to 23 miles and I got a cramp in my arm. <laughs> How do you get a cramp in your arm running a marathon? And the question came to my mind, why am I here? Why am I here? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why am I here? Not like when you walk into the room and you forgot what you came in there for and you said, why am I here? Not like that. Everybody has that. But I mean, like when you end up in a place, you end up in a, doing a thing that you never expected that you would do and you think, why am I here? Maybe this morning, maybe this very morning you walked into the church and you thought, why am I here? I think it's a really valuable question for us to ask, right? Especially when we come to a place like this. Like, why am I here? What do I hope to get out of these next 70 minutes of my life? What am I, what am I looking for? What if I were to come around and ask you personally, like, why are you here today? Why are you here today, Sam? Why are you here today, Don? Why are you here today, Caleb? What if I were to come around and ask you? And if you told me the answer to that question, I would tell you if I thought it was good enough or not. Some of you would probably walk away, right? Well, we're going to see a story today uh, where uh, the same thing's going to happen to Jesus when he's probably at the height of his popularity. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 8. Uh, it is page 722 in this Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's these on the floor. You'll want to pick that up because we don't know if the screens are going to work. Uh, isn't technology grand? You know, for 2,000 years, people have been gathering to worship Jesus, but we are the first generation that has had a problem where if electronics doesn't work, you don't get a worship. So uh, sorry about that issue this morning. Uh, but we're continuing in our series called In the Flesh, as Jerry said. We're walking through the life of Jesus. We're spending 13 weeks, 13 weeks walking through the life of Jesus. And I've heard from quite a few of you that that's a long time to spend. And in fact, uh, it's not popular in the church to spend 13 weeks on anything because you don't get to have fancy new graphics and cool new videos and you don't get a chance to really invite friends to church. And if somebody shows up to church on week nine of 13, they're kind of like, ah, you know what? I'm a little late. Maybe I'll come back when this is over and we're doing something new. Um, 
and people will think, well, you know, we need to do a marriage series, we need to do a money series, we need to do a series on, uh, you know, how to raise your kids. And, but here's the thing, all of that is in Jesus. We, we've had people, um, and if you're one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm not trying to poke fun at you. I just want to tell you a little bit of how, how this kind of sounds. We've had people say, why are we teaching Jesus again? Didn't we just do that last year? <laughs> um, now, I know that there are churches that never talk about Jesus. There are large churches that never talk about Jesus. Um, but we're not that church. And so we believe, as Jerry said, that Jesus is our model for life and for ministry. And if you're going to follow somebody, don't you need to know what their life is like? I mean, if you were gonna date somebody or marry somebody, wouldn't you want to know as much as you could about them, spend as much time as possible with them, get to know what they're all about? Well, think about this. If you're gonna spend eternity with Jesus, don't you wanna know? as much as you can. Don't you want to spend as much time as you can with him here on earth? And if you're not a Christian, there's a very good chance that that's why you're here today is because you want to know more about this man, Jesus. So let's review where we've come from. We haven't done that in a few weeks. And what we're doing is we're walking chronologically through the life of Jesus. We've been using this map. And so we'll just uh, kind of follow along here. Jesus shows up uh, for the first time down at the bottom of that map along the Jordan River right there near Bethany. Uh, where he's baptized by John the Baptist. 30 years old, first time he shows up in scripture as an adult. And he's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him right after he's baptized. And immediately the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert just outside of Bethany, where he spends 40 days being tempted by Satan. Jesus comes back from that experience, back to the Jordan River. John is still there baptizing people. And John looks around and he tells his followers, John's there with his disciples and he tells his followers, hey, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't follow me, follow him. And some of them do. They leave John and they start following Jesus. Uh, Jesus takes his followers up to a wedding in Cana, which is in the, uh, the north of that map right up there, up in Galilee. That area in the top is called Galilee. Uh, the area in the bottom is called Judea. The area in the middle to the left or west is called Samaria. So he takes them up to Galilee, to Cana, where he performs his very first miracle at a wedding, which is what? turning water into wine, right? And then he, uh, he goes back to Jerusalem for the Passover. He clears the temple. Then they go back up to Galilee where they have to go through Samaria. He has an interaction with a woman of the well. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, and then he goes back and heals, does his second miracle that we see in scripture, which is he heals a nobleman's son uh, who is in Capernaum while Jesus is in Cana. It's his first long distance miracle, second miracle. Now, interestingly enough, the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry, he only does two miracles that are captured in Scripture, only two, those two, in the first half. I mean, he's got three and a half, three and three quarters years on earth, and in the first half of his ministry, he does two miracles, and they're both very private. One is at a wedding, and one helps one man. So after this, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown where he's rejected. If you remember that from a few weeks ago, they tried to throw him off the cliff, uh, but he escapes through the crowd. 
Then after that, Jesus moves his ministry. He had been down in the Judean wilderness down uh, to the east of Jerusalem. He moves his ministry up to Capernaum. Some of his followers are from Capernaum. They probably got some connections and ties there. So Jesus moves his ministry up to Capernaum. And then he calls some of his disciples from the area to start fishing for people. Now, this is 18 to 21 months into his ministry when he starts calling them to go fish for people. In other words, hey, you guys have walked with me long enough. You've sat under my teaching long enough. It is time for you to go out and start start to fish for people. Uh, And then he takes them on some fishing trips. Uh, Not literal fishing trips, but fishing trips for people. They go into uh, Peter's house where they heal Peter's mother-in-law. They go into the temple. They go into the marketplace. They see Jesus heal a leper uh, and then heal a lame man near the pool of Bethesda. The miracles start to pick up. And then Jesus appoints the 12 apostles. Now, These are the men who will be the leaders in his ministry and will be trusted to carry the ministry forward after he's crucified. Now, it's so important that we realize that this happens two to two and a half years into Jesus's ministry when he finally calls the 12 apostles to be leaders of his ministry. Uh, So often when we think about the disciples, when the Bible uses the word disciples, we think about the 12. Think about the 12 that are named in there. But the 12 weren't chosen until fairly late in the ministry of Jesus. And in fact, he had many more disciples than that. And so all of the apostles, the 12 were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. It's critical to understand in the story we're going to read today. So after the 12 are chosen, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Then he heals uh, the servant of a Roman centurion. And then he finds out that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. And then he has dinner, as we talked about last week, in Simon the Pharisee's house where uh, he is anointed by a sinful woman. And all that brings us up to today where we want to look at many of the miracles that Jesus performed happen in this little time stretch that we're going to talk about today. Uh, pretty quick succession. They're all captured in Luke 8 and 9. And so uh, Luke 8:22 is where we're going to start this story. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Cool story, right? One you probably heard in Sunday school if you were in church growing up. Uh, And it goes on, verse 25, where is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Listen to that question. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, some of the men in this boat had been following Jesus for more than two years, often spending weeks or on end with him, and they still couldn't believe he was who he said he was. If they needed these lessons, uh, you can see how important it is for us to continually be learning about Jesus and thinking about Jesus and meditating on Jesus. Okay, so after this, I want to fast forward through some of these stories. Don't miss this. Every one of these is incredible, impressive, miraculous. Every one of these stories could be and has been, I'm sure, a sermon in itself. And maybe if you're looking for something to read this week, Luke 8 and 9, this entire string of miracles, um, and it's also captured in Matthew. Uh, But this would be a great thing to be reading uh, over the next week. Just be looking at these accounts and, and some of the miraculous things that Jesus did and some of the teaching that went with those miracles. Because remember, Jesus never did a miracle without trying to teach somebody something. 
right? But for the sake of this morning, I'll just tell you that in verse uh, 26 through 39, so what happens after this, Luke 8, 26 through 39, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Uh, Paul Mumal did a great teaching on that right here uh, this summer when we were in the series called Humans of the Bible. If you missed that, go to our podcast and check that out. In verse 40 through 48, then we read that Jesus heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She had seen every doctor. She had spent all of her money trying to get healed, and she touches the cloak of Jesus, and she's healed. And then in verse 49 through 56, uh, Jesus heals the daughter of a man named John. And then if you read Matthew's account, there are some other miraculous healings right around this same time, but it all leads up to the story that I want to focus on today, probably Jesus' one of his best-known miracles. Jesus' ministry at this time seems to be hitting on all cylinders. He's really gaining in popularity. He's drawing large crowds wherever he goes. He really can't get away. But he's starting to feel the tension that his time on earth is coming to a close. You feel this. He's drawing these crowds in, but he knows that he's headed towards the cross. And so he decides to push the little baby birds out of the nest and send them out to do some ministry on their own. This is in Luke 9, 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. What did they do when they went out? They proclaimed the good news and they healed people everywhere. These two things go hand in hand in Jesus's ministry. I want you to see that. When when Jesus sends people out to do ministry, what does he do? He says, uh, heal the sick, and proclaim the good news. Do good works and tell good news. Like those two always go together. Jesus says the gospel of eternity is always accompanied by good news for now. And good news for now, like good deeds, it always needs to be accompanied by the gospel of eternity. Uh, You know, that's why uh, some of us ran for World Vision yesterday. We know that World Vision does an incredible job of meeting people's physical needs, in this case, clean water, but also teaching them the gospel, teaching them about Jesus. Every village they go to where they dig a well or repurpose an old well or they put in filtering systems, they, 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 they spread the gospel there. Those two go together. Because when you, when you feed somebody, what happens? They get hungry again, right? When, when somebody is healed of a disease, they'll eventually get sick again and die. It's hard to meet people's spiritual needs when they have very real physical needs, that's true. But if you only meet their physical needs and don't ever take care of their spiritual needs, well, then it's a lost cause. You know, why would you heal somebody without telling them why they're being healed? Like what they may still have ahead of them. You know, if we we only feed or clothe people without taking care of their their, uh, spiritual needs, we miss the whole point. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He says, go heal the sick and proclaim the good news. Now, while they're out on their own, something pivotal happens in the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist is killed in prison by Herod the Tetrarch. Remember, John is the cousin of Jesus. He was also a ministry partner. They kind of did ministry together, but he's also kind of a mentor to Jesus. He's the one who baptized Jesus. So Jesus is surely distraught. Uh, He's he's likely mourning. He's probably crying. Uh, And so here's what happens, uh, Luke 9, 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Let's just, let's take a moment and put yourself in Jesus' shoes. All this pain and all this heartache swimming around in his head. 
one of your best friends, your ministry partners has died. You just want to get away. You know what that's like, right? I mean, maybe not on that level, but on some level, you know what that's like. You get home from a hard day at work and uh, it's been rough and you just need like five minutes. Like if I could have 300 seconds to myself to decompress, everything would be good, right? But the kids are needy. The husband or the wife is asking you questions and all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know what? I'm just not gonna get any rest today. It's not gonna happen. I just get up and start working. Or students, you spend all day at school. You've had a hard day. You come home. You get practice after that, right? You go to school. You go to practice. You come home. I just need five minutes, but your parents are all up in your business about doing your homework, right? I'm sure you can't relate to that probably. Uh, but no, I just need five minutes. Well, you're not gonna get that. You're not gonna get that rest. This is, this is what it's like to be in Jesus' shoes on a very extreme uh, level. And so uh, he's not gonna get a rest. His friend has died. His disciples have been gone. He wants to grieve with them. He wants to hear about their trip, but the crowds followed him. So probably, you know, let's just push him away because we just need this time to ourselves, right? Well, here's what happens in verse 11. He welcomed them. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. I read this verse this week. This was a punch in the gut to me, like to my priorities, you know, I don't know about you. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's like, okay, Jesus wants to be off by himself. The crowds come. What does he do? He starts healing them. He starts preaching to them. He just takes them in. Now, here's what happens next. You probably know this story, and especially if you studied the Bible at all or if you, uh, you know, went to Sunday school when you were a kid. Uh, verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we're here in a remote place. Uh, he replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go buy food for all this crowd. And then it tells us, Luke tells us about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Now, this is clearly a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus because it's one of the only things that's captured in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four have this, this uh, account in them. All right. And again, let's remember that Jesus is near the height of his popularity. I would say this represents probably the largest crowd he ever preached to, he was ever a part of. It's 5,000 men, Scripture tells us. 5,000 men would include their wives and children. So maybe 15,000, maybe more people. This is a big crowd for a guy without a microphone or screens or drums or anything like that to hold a church service, right? 5,000 men and their families. Um, it's uh, been a long day. It's getting late. We know that. Matthew's account tells us this miracle happened as evening approached. Uh, Mark says it was late in the day. They had been trying to get away. The crowd just kind of pushed their way in. From other accounts, we can see that for most of the day, Jesus has been preaching and healing their sick, talking to them about the kingdom of God, and the disciples are tired. They're tired. You know how that is. We go 65 to 70 minutes most Sunday. And if I start to creep close to 75, I can start to hear your stomachs growling. I can see you fidgeting. I see people looking at their watches. Is that right? Did I set my clock back last night? I don't know, right? And especially today when your body clock thinks it's after 11, it's getting close to brunch or whatever meal you have. 
at 11 o'clock, right? We're hungry. They're hungry. They want rest. But they can't just come and tell Jesus that. The disciples can't do that because every time Peter goes to Jesus, he gets rebuked for something, right? And so they've got to come up with an idea of how to do this. So uh, the disciples come up and they come up with this plan, right? And they come up and they go, Jesus, your, your sermon this morning was really great. And afternoon, this morning and afternoon. It was really great. It was awesome. And that healing thing, whew, I've never seen anything like that. That was incredible. But uh, anyway, uh, it's getting late. I was talking with Peter over there, and we were thinking, um, we were thinking that the people are hungry. That's good, because Jesus always has compassion on the people, right? He, he rebukes the disciples, but he has compassion on the people. The people are hungry. Yeah, that's it. The people are hungry, and we've got nothing to eat, so why don't you go ahead and send them away? And Jesus is so compassionate in this moment, and I could just picture him without even looking up. He goes, you know what? You give them something to eat. So the disciples look around the crowd and they find uh, two small loaves of barley bread and five fish. We find out from the apostle John, or is that backwards? Sorry, five loaves of barley bread and two fish. We find out from the apostle John that, this, that, that was, uh, who was there in the group, he was there at the time. Uh, he writes about this later, but that it was from a boy who offered up his food that he had, his lunch that he had. Now think about this. Where this miracle ends up is pretty amazing, feeding 5,000 men and their families and having 12 baskets of food left over. But where it began is just as amazing. It begins with a boy who has the faith to offer up his lunch to Jesus to make something even greater out of it. What a great faith lesson for you and me. Think about how this applies to our lives. This one act of sacrificial giving provided God with everything he needed to make this miracle happen. Now, could Jesus have just fed the people from nothing? Yeah, of course he could have. But that's not often how God chooses to work. He often chooses to use whatever we offer up to him, whatever little thing that we can give him, he can take and make something great. And yet how often do we let what we can't do stop us from doing what we can do? I mean, how often do we let what we can't give stop us from giving what we can give? And so we hold back from God, like we, we, we tend to hold things back. But this boy had faith and he offered up what he had. Now, I think as you read the story, you could probably sense, you can probably feel the hesitation from the disciples. But when we see what happens next, we see that they had faith too, that they're starting to learn. They're starting to get it from Jesus a little bit. Jesus tells the people to sit down in groups. Then he prays, then he breaks the bread and the fish. But instead of handing them out himself, what does he do? He uses the disciples. He has the disciples hand them out. Jesus uses his disciples to do his work. That's a great lesson from the story. Jesus uses his disciples to do his work. And in the process, they get to show his glory. Now, you have to know that the disciples are thinking as they're handing stuff out, they've got a group of 50. And they're like, don't take too much, okay? It's like, it's like um, I don't know how you were this week, but at the end of the night on Tuesday night when your Halloween candy bowl got low and you're like, like at the beginning, people are coming, you're like, yeah, hey, here, take, take a bunch. And then it starts to get low and you're like, hey, um, I'm gonna break this one in half. And take that, right? You can just tell the disciples are probably like, don't take very much. But when they see, right, when they see that what they have is not getting smaller, they're pulling stuff off, they're handing it out, it's not getting smaller. You can probably just sense their faith starting to grow, right? It's a great reminder for us that we, our faith grows when we serve others. My faith grows anytime I serve other people. When, when, when I serve in the ministry of this church or outside this church, my faith starts to grow. 
When you serve in the ministry of this church or outside these walls, your faith will start to grow. When you do good works for people in Christ's name, we so often think we're doing it for them. But Jesus uses it to change us. When you serve in Gen Kids, as Jerry said, you're not just watching somebody's kids, you're making disciples of those kids. You're raising the next generation of Christians. When you hand out worship programs at the front door, you're not just giving out literature. You're the first smile that people see when they come into Genesis Church. You're that welcoming face that they see. On Friday, we celebrated the big event with 300 of our volunteers and their families. And it was a great time. I personally think it was my favorite big event we've ever done. And so I don't know if you were there. Um, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Um, and, and if you serve here at Genesis Church in any capacity, I'm really thankful for you. I really am. I, I, I want you to know I don't take you for granted. And if you're a generous giver here at Genesis Church, if you give on a regular basis, I'm thankful for you. I don't take you for granted. I'm really thankful for what you give. We couldn't do this without you. But I also felt, as I was reading the story this week, the need to say to some people in this room in a very loving way, you've been on the sidelines too long. You know, maybe you're new here and you're still trying to figure out where you fit in or maybe you used to serve, but you took a break and that break was supposed to be a few weeks or a couple months and now it's kind of stretched out longer than you expected. Can I just say to you in the most pastorly way I know, if that's a word, it's time. It's time. It's time to get off the sidelines. It's time to end your break and step into the family here at Genesis. If you've never given before, I want you to experience the joy that comes from generosity. If you've never served before or you've served before but you're not serving now, it's time. I'll tell you, it's much easier to sit on the bench. It's easier to sit on the bench, but you know what? Legends aren't made on the bench. Legends are made in the game. I love you. I want God's best for you. Come join us. You know, I think it's great that Jesus took this boy's offering, which, which who knows may have been all that he had, and he recruited the disciples to help him serve. Serving and giving were at the core of, and continue to be at the core of Jesus's ministry. And I also love that at the end of this dinner, the disciples are the ones who get to go around and pick up the leftovers. And I don't think it's coincidence that they picked up 12 baskets full, right? 12 baskets, 12 apostles, you think maybe Jesus just wanted them to have a reminder of God's faithfulness? And I just don't know. All four gospel accounts give us this seemingly minor detail, so I think there's something to it. And I think it's because Jesus wanted us to know that God is always faithful, that we can remember that God is faithful, that he's a good provider. God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, Scripture says. And what we could do is stop right there pray, say amen, and get out of here with a really good feeling about everything that God does for us and all he provides for us and how faithful he is. We could do that. But if we switch over to John's account in John chapter six, something really fascinating happens. What we see is that after this miracle, the people are so impressed by Jesus, they realize he must be a prophet and they wanna make him king. They wanna make him king and they wanna do it by force. So he runs away. He goes off to be by himself. It's interesting that when people come to Jesus with a need, he runs to the need. But when they come to him with something for him, he runs away from it. Isn't that fascinating? So Jesus goes off by himself. 
He gets his disciples in a boat. He pushes them off the land. He says, I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. Uh, Jesus goes up to pray, and then he famously walks on water, yet another miracle. But it's what happened after that that really bothered me this week. The next day, the crowd goes looking for Jesus. He had gone back to Capernaum, which is his home base now, remember. And the crowd goes and finds him there, and he tells them this, John 6, 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Hmm. And how hard is that? Skip down a few verses. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And it continues a few verses later in verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And then here's what happened. The Jesus for King movement evaporates. People were confused. They were sickened. They just didn't get it. They ran away. And if you read the whole conversation, you can see that Jesus is talking about belief. For him, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. He says, he who eats, he who believes in me has eternal life. You have to believe, but it's not just intellectual belief. You have to abide in Christ. Eating and drinking is about obedience. When we abide in Christ, it means we're living in the kingdom and that he has brought to earth. We're walking as he walked and eating his flesh and drinking his blood is about suffering. Because when we share in the suffering of Christ, scripture tells us we share in his glory as well. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to live every day in the saving power of his death on the cross. Now, the disciples don't know that yet. You know, they, Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't been risen from the dead. And as often as he tells them that he's going away, but he'll be back, they don't understand. And so here's what happens in verse 66. From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Can you imagine seeing Jesus do all these miraculous things and then because of one hard teaching, turn your back on him? Because wanting Jesus to do something for us and wanting Jesus are not the same thing. And so imagine the rejection that Jesus felt in that moment. I mean, in his deity as fully God, clearly he knew he had work to do. He knew what was gonna be required, but in his humanity, can't you imagine Jesus felt the sting of rejection there? So he turns to the 12, those who are left behind, and he says, you do not wanna leave me too, do you? You hear that? You feel that pain? You feel the hurt? But here's what happens next. Peter speaks up and responds. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is so good. It's so important. It's so important. This is more important for you to get right than anything else in your life. If you mess up in school, if you mess up in your career, if you mess up your marriage or whatever else, if you can get this right, you're miles ahead of most people. 
At the same time, if you get everything else right, the rest of your life looks perfect, but you miss this, then you've gone horribly wrong in your life. Where will you go? Now, if I can be transparent with you, let me tell you where I'm tempted to go. When I'm having doubts or questions or struggled, struggles, I'm, I'm tempted to avoid God. So instead of diving into his word, I'll pick up a fiction book or I'll turn on a movie. Sometimes I'll let running or exercise take the place of my quiet time with God. Now, those aren't bad things, but they need to be secondary in my life, right? Not primary. They can't be the, the ultimate things. It needs to be God first, my relationship with God first. In fact, when my priorities are right, what my life looks like is my relationship with God, my family, my work as a pastor, and then everything else. Where else are you tempted to go? Maybe it all comes down to the first question I ask you. Why are you here? Why are you here today? Some of you are here because you're curious. You don't have a relationship with God and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you want to know more. I want you to know that I did a ton of study and research and praying and asking before I gave my life over to Christ. Because at one time in my life, if you're not a Christian, I was just like you. I was sitting in a church under a teacher that I wasn't sure I believed he was telling the truth. Um, Just listen to this guy that I didn't know. But eventually I came to realize that all of the options, all of the religions out there, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? And some of you are here because you like the music or you have lots of friends here. Or maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, but you've never come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Why not? As you can see from this interaction, Jesus calls for a decision. What about you? Are you going to leave me too? If not here, where will you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? And for still others of you here, you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus and you read your Bible and you pray and you you give to the church and you serve, but when you hear a hard teaching or something you don't agree with, you have a tendency to just skip over it, right? To push it aside. To, because what Peter proclaimed that day is that Jesus alone offers eternal life. But what does this mean? What it means is that Jesus may not have liked this teaching, but he knew that Jesus had the words of eternal life. There was no other place for him to go. You know, look back at the miracles of Jesus that he performed throughout his life, and what you'll see is the, the first ones were very private. You know, he does the first one at a wedding. He does the second one for one man. And then they start to become more public, right? He starts to do them in a crowd. Well, this is the first one. The feeding of the 5,000 was really the first one that was for a crowd. You know, this was for the 5,000 men and their families. They benefited from it. But the last miracle Jesus did was for everyone when he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. He came back from the grave. And that is a miracle for everyone. Jesus alone offers eternal life. And sometimes we don't like a teaching of Jesus, so we ignore it or it turns us away from him. But Jesus says, if you want eternal life, you will eat his flesh and drink his blood. You will take in all of him, his example, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, even when we're tempted to think, I don't understand how a good God could, you know, maybe it will help to remember that Our lives on earth are short, but God's kingdom is an eternal one. His ways are not our ways, but as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways, that Jesus has has turned down an earthly kingdom to pursue an eternal one. And as humans, we may be kings of the earth, but our reigns are short, and his reign is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am... uh, so thankful 
for your teaching and for the challenge that you give us, for the uh, message that you alone have eternal life. God, I know that there are people in this room that don't believe that, that haven't bought into that yet. And and, uh, I hope that they were moved by something they've heard through your story today. And God, I I just know that um, there are people here that are teetering on the edge of following you. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage, the wisdom to to follow you, to do that, to make that decision today. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room that are teetering on the edge of walking away, of turning their back. And God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that they would stick it out, that they would see that there's no place else to go, that you alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, I'm thankful that you made that clear to me so many years ago. And I pray that that becomes clear to us. God, remind us this morning to fix our eyes on what's eternal and not on what is temporary. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.